This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Michael Pirovalakis, a four-year-old boy with the ultra-rare neurodevelopmental condition, SPG50 disease, earlier this year became the first person to be dosed with an experimental gene therapy developed to treat the disorder. The gene therapy was the result of a relentless pursuit by his parents, Terry and Georgia, to raise money and engage scientists and others in the development of a treatment for SPG50. We spoke to Michael's father and founder of Cure SPG50, Terry Pirovalikas, and associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, Stephen Gray, about SPG50, the work to develop and advance an experimental gene therapy for the condition into the clinic, and why Pirovalikas says his work is not yet done. Terry, Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. We're going to talk about the ultra-rare neurodegenerative condition, SPG50, the work the two of you have done to advance an experimental therapy into the clinic, and where we go from here. Terry, perhaps we can start with your son, Michael. Listeners may remember an episode we did with you early in your journey. How did Michael come to be diagnosed with SPG50? Um, yeah, so around six months of age, um, Michael wasn't lifting his hands. Um, he wasn't reaching his milestones. And my wife noticed something was going on. So we went to the doctor's office and they were like, you know, he'll catch up. Don't worry about it. Um, so then what happened was um, we waited about 12 months, well, nine months, actually. And he still wasn't raising his hands. And he started noticing that he was starting to get microcephaly, um, slowing down of his head growth. And then around 12 months of age, we were um, in the infectious disease unit because I was in Latin America and they thought he had Zika or CMV. Those came back negative and we got transferred to uh, neurology. They did a bunch of panels um, and a bunch of tests and they found that he had the thinning of the corpus callosum through an MRI. Um, all the panels came back negative and then they did a West report. And uh, on April 2nd, 2019, he was diagnosed with SPG50. And, and what is SPG50? How does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, so spastic paraplegia type 50, basically what happens is it's a slowly progressing paralysis of spasticity that starts in the toes. And it works its way up in the first decade of life to the waist and the second and third decade of life up to the shoulders and the arms and uh, causes severe cognition uh, impairment. This is a, an ultra-rare condition. What were you told about it when Michael was diagnosed? We were told that there's less than 50 kids in the world, that they really knew nothing about the disease, 
other than it causes severe cognition delays and um, growth developmental delays. And, and that was it. They said, go home, you know, love him, uh, you know, do physiotherapy and that kind of stuff. But there's very little that we know about it. It's remarkable to think about the speed at which you were able to work to get a gene therapy developed and, and Michael dose, but how did you come to work with Steve? So I went to a conference called ASGCT in uh, Boston, and I met with six of the seven world experts. Um, I met the NIH, the FDA, and a bunch of companies. And actually, Dr. Gray won an award that day um, that was for, for, I think it was Geneticist of the Year. Um, and right after that presentation, he actually was kind enough to meet with me, and I pleaded with him to take on the program because he was super busy with other ones, obviously. And uh, and he agreed to, and and that's kind of where this journey started. Now, Steve, many of our listeners will be familiar with you and your work to develop gene therapies for ultra rare conditions. What led you to believe a gene therapy was a viable strategy for SPG fifty? Yeah, I mean, we looked at SPG fifty like you know, like we'd look at a lot of other. Um, you know, d diseases and genes, and, you know, there, there are certain characteristics of it that look like it might be amenable to gene therapy. I think the size of the gene, you know, worries about overexpression or underexpression seemed, seemed favorable. You know, it, 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 and I think that the type of the disease itself, you know, kind of matched somewhat uh, you know, other disorders that we'd had success with. So, you know, all, all in all, I mean, it, it looked like it could be a good candidate for gene therapy. Um, and really, you know, Terry was very convincing um, as, far as being a good sort of partner on the patient advocacy side. And, and, um, and we decided to take the leap. Well, what does it take to move a gene therapy from concept to a clinical trial in the context of an ultra rare condition? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a long and difficult road. Uh, I mean, I think that this went relatively quickly for SPG50, but, you know, I think you, you need certain pieces in place. You, you need an appropriate animal model or cell models to test a treatment. Um, and, you know, but you've got to initially kind of design your best idea of what that gene therapy approach could look like. It really helps if you can lean on past experience and, and past successful programs to kind of guide that um, de design and initial approach. Uh, and, and then it's kind of a combination of you're trying to do um, studies to test whether that treatment is effective, you know, in, in kind of um, preclinical models, you know, cells and animals. And at the same time, you're trying to gauge, you know, if you're, you know, the, the safety of it. Um, and then that leads into uh, if you do see positive treatment results in the laboratory, then uh, doing sort of formal toxicology studies, uh, which is where the cost starts to increase substantially. Uh, and then really the biggest limitation is typically around, um, you know, the manufacturing of the drug. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to find access uh, in manufacturing facilities, and it's incredibly expensive. Um, you know, but, but, you know, Terry's organization was just an unbelievable partner in that whole process. And, uh, and he opened doors and, and kind of 
you know, made things happen that, um, uh, that's, that's really very unique. Um, and then, you know, after you do all that, if all of the safety and efficacy studies look favorable and you're able to manufacture the drug, then, you know, it's a process of applying to the regulatory agencies and getting permission to start the clinical trial. Terry, I, I want to follow up on that with you and, and the things you did. But before that, Steve, are there ways you've been able to compress the time? Are there common vectors you're using for neurological diseases or other things you're able to do to speed the development of a, of a gene therapy? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, my lab uh, and other labs, you know, have been, uh, you know, developing approaches and moving them into clinical trials, um, taking a similar approach. So, you know, in the past. And so, you know, we had initial experience with a disease called giant axonal neuropathy. We moved that into clinical trials in 2015 using an AAV9 vector. And, you know, really the, the approach that we took for SPG50 was almost a copy and paste uh, from that you know, in terms of the overall design and then the pathway from kind of concept to clinic. So we really relied on that past experience. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I think that that kept us from having to go down uncharted paths, fail, restart. You know, we were basically able to uh, chart a path from the beginning and follow it. Um, and, and luck was with us that we didn't, really reach any insurmountable hurdles. So how long did it actually take you from the time you started working on this to getting an IND? Well, so this, uh, this started actually with a um, clinical trial agreement in Canada uh, with Health Canada rather than an IND with the FDA. But from, you know, concept, like that first conversation with Terry to dosing the first patient was less than a year. Or sorry, <laughs> Less than three years. Still amazing. I, I think in the yeah, I think in the field of any kind of drug development, that's kind of lightning fast. Terry, what were the things you were able to do to open doors and, and get the process accelerated? You know, we did a lot of investigating and finding the right teams. And when we found the right team, we would usually go to the CEO or someone very senior and expl explain that, you know, time is of the essence, that we're not a company. They were moving very fast and we need their help. And, and always we got a responsive, absolutely, we're here to help you. Um, you know, an, an example was we, we applied to Health Canada. They came back and, you know, we're adamant that we use a larger animal. We got on the phone pretty much right after the call was done. And in two months, we were starting our at larger animal study. Um, you know, other things that we did is we took a lot of financial risk. So before the, the um, efficacy animals were even dosed, we were actually starting our rat talks in the GLP lab before we even finished or started our non-human primate or our larger animal study. We had manufactured our clinical batch. So we, we took a lot of financial risks, but we never took any safety or, or shortcuts. Everything that we did was uh, a discussion between myself and Dr. Gray and the team. We, we decided what was the best course of action and nothing was done with a single decision. I think that's the most important thing that we were aligned along the way. And if Dr. Gray felt that I was doing something that didn't seem to work or, we, or this partner was the wrong partner, we just moved on. Right. And that's, I think that was, 
extremely successful. And and on top of that, during COVID, the team didn't stop. Like, I mean, we could have shut down, they could have shut down the animal core like a lot of other labs did, but they went in every day to continue to work. And that's a testament to how dedicated the team was. Well, yeah, I was just going to jump in and, and really emphasize a point that Terry made because um, he did take a lot of risks. I mean, they were calculated risks, but, you know, they were financial risks. And the traditional sort of safe approach is to do these, do one step, wait for the results, do the next step, wait for the results, and so on and so forth. And and that way you can you can cut your losses and kind of restart um, before you get to the biggest ticket costs. And, um, you know, in this case, a lot of things went in parallel and we're lucky that it came out um, good and we were able to move forward. But, I mean, it, it also could have ended kind of in disaster if, um, you know, we, we had findings in our toxicology studies that stopped us going forward. And then we essentially had to, you know, would have had to discard a, a whole drug, uh, GMP drug batch and start over. Despite the financial risk, you were able to do this What for what I would say is a jaw-dropping amount. Terry, how much did you raise? How did you go about raising money? And what did it ultimately cost to do what you did? Yeah, so we had an amazing team of support in my, my local community. I mean, we had people set up golf tournaments and galas and barbecues and lemonade stands. And we, and we just showed up. We didn't organize any of these events. Um, and then people were putting out lawn signs with pure SPG 50 in the front of the street. And we just had an amazing group of people. And then our story went viral and we had 23,000 donations from around the world. Um, and then what happened was that allowed us to not have to worry about things until we got very serious. And at one point we had to manufacture or lose a slot for a year. And we were very fortunate that a silent donor gave us 800,000 us dollars to continue because he felt that our program was doing everything correctly. Um, and then, and then when we got to toxicology, um, you know, we, we, again, we were stuck. We, we couldn't raise the money fast enough. And we found a partner that needed the data anyways, or felt that the value of the data would be acceptable and they paid for our tox program. So we were very fortunate, just like, like Dr. Gray saying, just we had a lot of luck with a lot of amazing people and we made a lot of good decisions along the way. And, Everything just fell into place, and and we were able to move forward. Well, give give listeners a sense of the range of scientific and technical talent you needed to engage to carry this through. Well, we need we needed about three and a half million dollars in total U.S., and we needed a team of hundreds of people. Like, I mean, like you know, people think that you know the scientists and everybody else are important, but everybody along this food chain, I call it, is important. For example. We were shipping a tox batch um, from Spain to Quebec, and it went through Texas during the snowstorm. And, you know, trying to get a hold of someone in the shipping group to say, hey, you need to replenish this dry ice for the next four days or we're going to lose this batch of product that can that will take months to remake. And the, the gentleman at Charles River that manages shipping was on the phone for hours talking to them, making sure that someone replenished it, and then called back every day for confirmation. This is the type of dedication that is along the whole pipeline that you have to get to because if you go, if you lose anything along the way, you're you're set back potentially a year, right? So we were just fortunate. We had this amazing group of people that just fully understood that you know we're trying to save kids, not Michael, but kids, right? <laughs> 
Michael was treated with the experimental gene therapy as the first patient in a clinical trial. How was the gene therapy administered? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, so again, this is pulling on the precedent of a protocol that we developed for giant exome neuropathy and, um, and started in, you know, seven years ago in 2015. And it's basically doing a, um, injecting the viral vector, the AEV vector into the cerebral spinal fluid. And we've been doing it via a lumbar puncture. So it's similar to a spinal tap. Uh, and, and there are other clinical trials that are kind of injecting into the same fluid space, you know, kind of by other routes, but, you know, that's the approach that we're taking. And this is a viral vector you're using, so you, you kind of get one shot at it. How do you go about determining proper dosing? Yeah, I mean, all that starts with the laboratory studies in animals, uh, you know, where you're testing a range of doses, um, you know, in an animal model of the disease uh, to, to kind of find what the therapeutic dose, the minimum therapeutic dose is. Uh, and then and then you're also doing the same thing in formal toxicology studies, kind of seeing, you know, what's the highest safe dose that you can go to. And, and then so you, you look at that, you know, you, you try to mesh that effective dose with the safe dose and, and ultimately, you know, and extrapolate from the animals to humans and that, that sets your, your human dose. Is the expectation that on a best case scenario, this will halt the condition or is there reason to think it might actually reverse progression? Well, you know, I can, I can only speak to, you know, kind of our animal studies so far in the, uh, the mouse model, you know, the mice that model SPG 50. And, you know, in those studies, we showed, um, you know, significant kind of preservation of a lot of their, um, you know, their motor function, their movement, um, uh, you know, those studies are still ongoing kind of for the, the end of the life of the mice. Um, but, you know, but out to a year, I think things have looked pretty encouraging. It, you know, it's, it's always difficult to kind of compare, um, you know, mice to humans. Um, so, you know, I think that we're encouraged that, that there should be a benefit. Um, but, the, you know, it's also when we start treating humans, that's the experiment, too. Terry, when was Michael treated, and has there been any noticeable change yet? Yeah, so so what we did was we we actually applied at both regulators at the same time because we wanted to treat more kids. But Michael was treated in uh, Toronto uh, Sick Kids Hospital on March twenty fourth, um, and we're we're seeing some things. But I think the reality is because he's on um, a really strict immunosuppressant regimen. You don't know if it's the, you know, the drug that's causing, you know, um, reduction in inflammation in the brain or is it, caught, you know, the steroids that he's on. So, you know, it's really hard to tell at this point if, you know, what those gains are and if they're, you know, because of other things. But, you know, we are we're we're um, optimistic that things will, will improve. Michael will be monitored for five years. How will you go about measuring the effectiveness of the gene therapy? Yeah, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be um, doing various efficacy endpoints, such as um, the MAS and the TARDU scale, which monitor spasticity and reflexes of the spasticity. And we're also going to be doing the Bailey's and the violence scale in order for us to determine if there's any cognition improvements. Um, and then obviously safety. So we come back every three months for the first 18 months to sick kids, and then uh, every year after that for the next five years. And then there is a, a, some extension of that for the next 15 
Cure SPG50 received a rare pediatric disease designation for the gene therapy, you could continue treating kids through a clinical trial. How does the potential to get a priority review voucher change your strategy or the opportunity to potentially find a commercial partner? Well, I mean, the peer review helps you in order for you to figure out if you can make more drug or if you can make, create partnerships. Um, we're doing this as uh, Cure SPG50 is a sponsor. We are creating, we created um, six doses today. We have another batch being made, which is going to be a total of 10. Thanks to the Columbus Children's Foundation and Virogen, who has been an amazing partner. And we're hoping that this clinical trial will start in October, November. We got approval from the FDA August 11th to proceed with this clinical trial. And um, our goal is to show efficacy over the 10 children and then hopefully receive an approval to to get that approved fully. Because the reality is there is no commercial partner that's going to take on a program for 87 kids worldwide with nine in the U.S., considering we're going to dose 10 altogether. Um, so, you know, we don't have that many attempts and funding to get this going. We need to try to get it, you know, through one shot. Steve, as people think about developing gene therapies for ultra-rare conditions like SPG50, is there an opportunity to scale that work? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is what, you know, the NIH has been trying to wrestle with. Even, you know, the FDA has been weighing in and, and trying to help figure this out. Um, and there's, you know, programs have been rolling out kind of at the federal level to just try to start addressing that. But, I mean, it's a it's a very, very difficult problem, you know, because I'd, I'd say, you know, 90, 95% of the rare diseases out there have too few patients to really fit into the current commercial models. Um, so I think that the, the best that we can try to tackle that problem is to, you know, provide examples of hopefully successful therapies that can kind of serve a roadmap um, you know, for others to follow, just like kind of we did with GAN uh, and SPG50 is kind of carrying that torch behind it uh, and and hopefully use sort of platform type of approaches where we can, you know, uh, you know kind of copy and paste a lot uh, to, to make things move smoother and faster. And hopefully over time, you know, the, the regulatory burdens may come down um, and and you know, I think that there's a lot of innovative thinking going on in terms of how to bring those treatments to patients, you know, maybe outside of the current commercial models or, or maybe, you know, thinking up new commercial models. Time is such a critical factor in progressive diseases like Michael's. Are there barriers you think can be eliminated, ways to accelerate the process further? Yeah, I mean, there, there's certain aspects, you know, when you um, look at this, you know, the safety and the efficacy in all of your laboratory studies, I don't think that there's really good ways to shortcut that because, I mean, you have to show, even though it, it can be the same vector, it can be the same approach, you know, every gene is different. Uh, every gene can have different levels of toxicity um, and every disease might have different targets that sort of determine efficacy. So, um, you know, so unfortunately those are, those are steps that just, they have to be done, uh, and those take time, but the, the things that hopefully can, you know, bring down the barriers are maybe to, uh, um, 
you know, make improvements on the manufacturing in terms of access and cost and standard ability, you know, standardability. Um, because right now I'd say the drug manufacturer is probably the biggest barrier to a lot of these treatments moving forward. I also think like what Dr. Gray and Dr. Chen are doing, which is publishing all the data is also extremely important because, you know, a lot of these are being made by companies and they're not going to publish the data. Whereas if we continue publishing the data and showing our safety, our efficacy, then other other programs can use that data to help move along their programs. So maybe not in a direct way of saying you're going to take a transgene and just put it into a, you know, a different capsid or the same capsid, but in a different slot. At least you can have the data to reference and say, look, we're using the same promoter and we did, uh, you know, we did a rat and we're seeing the same exact data and maybe that, that maybe we'll not need a larger animal. You know, so I think, you know, what, what Dr. Gray and what Dr. Chen are doing by publishing this data is, it, I, I feel, will be extremely helpful in the, in the industry. Yeah, and maybe, maybe I'll follow up on that because I think that that's, Terry, thanks for bringing that up because it's so important. And, you know, we, we did this. We had started a clinical trial for something called CLN7-Batten disease um, about a year and a half ago. And when we published all of the preclinical data, I mean, we, we, we included the toxicology report from our pivotal toxicology study as, you know, as supplemental data in that paper. And, and so we, we basically published our complete set of efficacy and safety data um, and made it clear like that was, that was the entire package that went in for the, for the IND. So I think that that kind of serves as a very concrete roadmap for other people to follow. Um, and, you know, and even the design of the toxicology study and, and, and everything, how we did it. Um, and we're doing the same thing for SPG50. I want to ask each of you one final piece of advice. Steve, for advocates looking to engage a researcher like you, what advice would you give them for how to go about that? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think one of the Look, the interaction with Terry and Cure SPG 50, I think that this can, you know, also be, you know, kind of held up as an example of, of how to do this, um, where it really does take a good partnership. Uh, you know, Terry let me really focus on the research and moving everything forward, and, and he handled all the fundraising. You know, we never spent any time trying to write external grants. Um, uh, and he was, you know, very active in engaging, you know, some of the contract research organizations, the manufacturers, uh, you know, so that my lab could really just focus on the technical aspects uh, of, of moving this forward. And I, and I think that the other piece of advice, you know, is try to organize your patient community. Um, SPG50 benefited a lot because there's a group at Boston Children's Hospital that's been doing a natural history study on this disease for years. Most rare diseases don't have that benefit. And I think the second best thing that they can do to that is organize the patient community, uh, put together some type of a registry to at least start gathering, you know, information about the disease that can, you know, help, um, help with the eventual design of the clinical trial. And Terry, what what have you learned from this whole process that you would now use to advise other patient advocates looking to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, I get a phone call every week 
um, from a from a parent somewhere in the world, and I and I spend about an hour or two on each of them, and I you know tell them what they need to do, and I and I kind of guide them, and I tell them how dedicated they are. Like you have to be willing to give up your life, sell your home, uh, you know, do whatever you need to do to get this this treatment going, and it may not even pay off, right? That's the reality of it. And and Dr. Gray set these ground rules to me at the very beginning, and. And, uh, you know, I understood them, I accepted them and, and we moved forward and there was never a question around, you know, that those rules are my commitment because I would have sold my whole house in an instant, even if it was a slim chance. Um, but what I do is I, I walk them through it and I help them out and we find labs that are taking, taking them in. And I only, and I only move forward with programs and help them if they're dedicated. And, they, and usually what happens is I'll tell them this story and I'll walk them through it. And then one out of 10 people will call me back that are seriously committed to doing so. And I think that the reality is if it can fit into an AV9 or if people think it can be done and you really work super hard and you learn what you need to learn, you don't have to be an expert in everything. We're not, we're not doctors or scientists, we're troubleshooters, right? And, and if we can clear the roadblocks for people like Dr. Grace, so they can focus on what they need to do and we can clear the path forward, we, we will see a treatment. And, I, and what I hope people will see from this is when we did this, you know, we had a patient community, but no one helped us. Not a single family helped us, but we still made 10 doses. And I think if you're listening to this and, and there's a patient community out there and you're thinking it's research, there's no way it's ever going to happen. You can use me as an example. And if you jump on and you help that family out and there's two or three or four families, you're much stronger than an individual. And you can actually see these these therapies through. You know, and I think if that happens to one, two, 10, 20 programs, we're going to, it's going to be a, just an influx of Terry's and, you know, CLN7 and GAN and, and these, and these amazing people that I followed in my, in footsteps to do my, my, my therapy. Yeah. And I, I just have to throw in, I think in our first meeting, Terry, I, I specifically told you don't sell your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and on top of that, you also told me, you don't we don't do end of ones. And, and, and I took that to heart and, through this entire journey, it's been cured, cure SPG 50, journey to cure Michael. But the journey to cure Michael was meant to be a rally cry in Toronto. It was supposed to be, you know, journey to cure Peter or, you know, Samantha. But, you know, I, I appreciated that Dr. Gray was like, we're not going to do this for one kid. We're going to do it for as many as we can. And, and that's where we're at now. Our goal is to, to treat as many as we can and move this forward to so that every kid can see it. Terry Piravalikas, founder of Cure SPG 50, and Stephen Gray, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Terry, Stephen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.